Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's roundtable. Well, you gotta admit, even in Trump world, we've never seen so wild a week as this one. Sunday, it was the Super Bowl. Monday, the Iowa caucuses. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, until Thursday night at 9 p.m., still the Iowa caucuses. Monday and Tuesday, senators closing arguments in the trial of Donald Trump. Tuesday, the State of the Union. Wednesday, the big vote to acquit Donald Trump. And Thursday, Trump's victory tour starting by turning the National Prayer Breakfast into another campaign rally. Oh, my God. Where do we go from here? Well, let's ask our panel. Scott Wong covers Congress for The Hill. Hello, Scott. Hey, Bill. All right. Relax. It's Friday. (laughs) Finally. Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor, is a fellow with the University of Virginia's Miller Center and a member of the DNC. Hello, Chris. You had to put that in there in the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Want to find out all about it. And Niall Stanage, White House columnist for The Hill, also covering the 2020 Democratic primary. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. Welcome uh, to all of you. I think it's a a perfect panel today because look at the news of the day. Uh, Niall just got back from Iowa. Mm. Scott Wong just got back from the Senate trial down the street here. And Chris Liu, again, a member of the DNC, right in the middle of uh, of all of it. You know, how to get into this week's events, I've just been wondering, wondering about it for a couple of days. I decided not necessarily in the order of the most important, but chronologically, let's try it, okay? Starting with the Iowa caucuses. Niall, you were out there, well, Maybe just so it was nine o'clock last night, just for the record, the final 100 percent results were released by the Iowa Democratic Party. Now we're talking about state Democrat delegate equivalents, equivalents, Mm -hmm. SDEs. Pete Buttigieg, 26.2. Bernie Sanders, 26.1, although he did win the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Bernie did. Elizabeth Warren, 18, Joe Biden, 15.8, Amy Klobuchar, 12.3. So, Niall, what the hell happened? Well, I mean, where to begin with that as far as the actual results are concerned? I mean, I think, to be fair, the delay has been fairly well uh, catalogued in terms of the reasoning with uh, an app that appeared to, well, some some precinct captains didn't wish to uh, didn't wish to use it. Precinct uh, the people running the precincts, others were trying to phone in results, and those all got blocked. And there also appear to be some errors, really, in terms of the tabulation of results. I mean, that's why, to at least my knowledge, unless it has changed overnight, the Associated Press has still not stated a winner of the Iowa caucuses, despite the results that you just. 
mm-hmm. laid out. So a bit of a debacle there. I mean, also one that really robbed the party of the ability to have a winner making her or his case against Donald Trump in prime time on the night. And instead, it, it goes on um, all, all week. Now, of course, part of that is related to the sheer closeness of the result. As you noted, mm-hmm. it's around one-tenth of one percent, which always makes uh, declaring a winner more difficult by its nature. But uh, but not a great uh, few days for could, certainly could, for the De- Iowa Democratic Party. Could this have been avoided, Chris? Is this a an I mean, isn't this a colossal embarrassment? Not just for the Iowa Democratic Party, for the National Party. Well, I'd say this. I mean, I, I think it highlights we probably should be getting rid of caucuses. I mean, anyone who watched what happened there, I think it is. Um, look, in some, it's this wonderful vestige of a democracy that may have outlived its time. Um, you know, and we could sort of do uh, far more. Than, then we have time in this podcast that why we even have caucuses, why Iowa goes first, why there were multiple data sets that were being reported, why they were trying to use technology. All of these different things were a reaction to what happened in 2016, which, again, people forget was also an incredibly close contest between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And then you go back and look at, you know, even on the Republican side, uh, Donald Trump threw out allegations of fraud when Ted Cruz won. You go back to 2012, or I think it took him like 30 some days or however many days to finally declare that Rick Santorum had beat uh, Mitt Romney. So, yes, this is not a a great week for Iowa Democrats and the Democratic Party, but I think it raises broader questions about these caucuses. Not your beat, Scott, but you want to weigh in here? I mean, for for one thing, it certainly gave Donald Trump a big opening. He's been tweeting yet again this morning, if they can't count the votes, how the hell can they run health care? Right. And the, the line that I've heard from Republicans has been, and, and Chris will remember this, the 2013 rollout of uh, the Obamacare website, healthcare.gov. If the Democrats can't run healthcare.gov and they can't <laughs> conduct a, a fair and responsible Iowa caucuses, why would we put them in charge of the government? That's a, an argument I heard yesterday from Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. And so uh, this also has created a lot of distrust between obviously the Bernie camp and the Democratic establishment, something we saw back in 2016. I mean, so there are parallels between 2016 and the 2020 race, and it's basically resulted in a round of finger pointing inside the Democratic Party. So we've talked about process here, and now you sort of alluded that there's the process and then there's the results, right? Right. I mean, that Buddha judge, Hmm. it appears, maybe just squeaking though yeah and, uh, it was the winner and joe biden did came in fourth yeah absolutely i, I mean there's a couple of points there one is that for good or for ill we in the media do judge results a lot in the context or against the backdrop of expectations and in that fashion pete Buttigieg was clearly the person who surpassed expectations by the largest amount bernie sanders going into the caucuses i think was 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 the favorite i mean he was leading in the polls he, he i don't think he did himself any damage at all he is effect, effectively the joint winner but it was very much even among the top four candidates i think the results did uh, divide uh, those into two and two, essentially. Bernie and Buttigieg as the winners, Warren uh, kind of as a loser, really, but even more so the former Vice President Joe Biden. Um, how one can make the argument that one is the most electable candidate while coming forth is not immediately clear to me. It really hurt Biden, didn't it? Uh, yeah. Not permanently, not fatally, but 
Well, you know, poor it, showing. It, it, it was a poor showing. I mean, we can make arguments again about the demographic demographics of Iowa, which is certainly again a, a suboptimal place to start a, an election. What I found sort of interesting was on that Monday night, Tuesday morning, when there was a lot of finger pointing about uh, what was happening. What was fascinating is that both the Buttigieg and the Sanders camp could put out initial tallies based on, you know, the number of, you know, uh, precincts they were covering. And the Buttigieg people had like 70 percent covered. They could come up with tallies. I think the Bernie people put out 40 percent. You saw nothing from the Biden people. And so less mm. it's about the enthusiasm, but the lack of organization. And I think that's the thing that impresses me at Buttigieg, because that ability to have to know on the ground what's happening in 70 percent of precincts, far better than the Iowa Democratic Party knew at that point, I think will ultimately serve them well as this campaign goes on. One thing that troubled me as a Democrat overall and surprised me, too, was that the turnout this year was really significantly lower than it was certainly for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, and even, I think, um, the last time around. Yeah. And that that doesn't bode well for the Democratic Party. Yeah. And I think that's the story that's sort of been uh, overshadowed by the the app and uh, caucus debacle yeah. is that I mean, the where turnout, was the enthusiasm? Right. right. And and you would expect, given that Donald Trump is in the White House and he's firing up uh, the liberal base, that you'd see a huge turnout. And I think it was on par with the 2016 election in terms of Iowa turnout. And that has Democrats very concerned given what the result of the 2016 election. Could I just jump in Please. Bri briefly, though? Yes. There, I, I agree with with that, and I agree it is an issue. I also have a general um, hobby horse, which I'll just get on <laughs> here again, which is, and I'm not just saying this for Chris's benefit, Barack Obama, President Obama, has in a sense spoiled Democrats because they assume that people can replicate what he did. I covered Iowa in 2008. The excitement around him was extraordinary at that point. Barack Obama was a once-in-a-generation figure. Uh, and that means that people sometimes compare what happens right now to what Obama did. And it underestimates what an extraordinary figure he was, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Chris, um, what do we expect in New Hampshire. So I was on the Obama campaign in New Hampshire in 2008. And so I remember vividly the weekend before um, the pr uh, primary, there was a poll showing us up 13 points over Hillary Clinton. Uh, history will show that we lost by two and a half <laughs> points. Um, New Hampshire, again, as crazy as I was, New Hampshire is a really unpredictable state. Um, but it's it, Bernie's backyard, but, Elizabeth well, Warren's backyard. Right. So you've got you've basically got five candidates at the top, two from neighboring states. You've got independents able to vote. Uh, which changes the dynamics and makes polling very complicated. You've got these intervening events like tonight's debate, uh, which, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, we remember this from 2008, that famous moment when Barack Obama turned to Hillary Clinton and said, you're likable enough. <laughs> and that moment sort of just, you know, I mean, you could almost see the air coming out of the balloon at that point. Um, so I think it's as likely we leave uh, New Hampshire sort of in the kind of same four or five candidates at the top moving on to Nevada. So, so, Scott, as we move on to Nevada and South Carolina, which are probably will hold more weight this year, right? Whatever happened in Iowa, I mean, the opportunity to get this big bounce out of Iowa that everybody's looking for, I mean, that opportunity came and went, right? It's gone. Right. And I think another big storyline clearly is 
what happened to Joe Biden. He didn't perform well. He, he, he did not win place or show in Iowa. He is polling very poorly in New Hampshire. Uh, he has said South Carolina will be his southern firewall. He does well with African-Americans there. He's hoping to do well in Nevada. But will voters turn out for Joe Biden, given that he's proved to be a loser in Iowa and perhaps New Hampshire as well? Or will they shift their focus to another candidate like Pete Buttigieg or somebody else? Well, that gets to my next point, which is several people texted me right away Monday night and said that obviously the smartest person in the room is not in the room, and it's Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have um, talked to a bunch of the, the Bloomberg folks, not only in headquarters but in their region. I am astounded by the number of staff that they have around the country. Whoa, it is, right. I mean, it is uh, what they're doing right now in Virginia is incredible. I know I just came back from Washington State. They're going to put a staffer in every congressional district in Washington State from now until, you know, basically election day. I mean, this is, there is a brilliance. I mean, people forget we're arguing about who may have won Iowa and there are 41 delegates at stake. I mean, that will be eclipsed in magnitudes on Super Tuesday. Uh, and if Bloomberg continues this ad buy along with his staff, you know, it, it is an interesting question question as to whether he can you know pick up enough support but he can he's going to make this interesting he has spent over 200 million dollars alone the remainder of the field combined have spent 222 million he is paying you talk about these staffers low-level staffers for michael bloomberg get six thousand dollars a month when i was a little level i didn't get six thousand dollars a year (laughs) for the jerry brown campaign and he probably still owes me money um, <laughs> can he buy this election I, or nomination? I don't think so, but I say that with less confidence than I did <laughs> even two, two weeks ago. I mean, my view is basically that the Democratic Party isn't in a place uh, ideologically or mood-wise to nominate a billionaire technocrat, which is essentially what Bloomberg is. But look, the money is clearly having an impact in terms of his poll standing. I believe it's now over 2,000 staff, to to Chris's point. And the other uh, issue with Bloomberg is he has always needed certain things to fall into place that he can't control. And they did kind of do so in Iowa. I mean, he needed Biden to fade as the sort of Mm -hmm. standard bearer of the centrists, which has happened. He needed Bernie to be strong, which has pretty much happened. So, you know, Bloomberg's best route, really, is going into Super Tuesday with Bernie looking as the favourite to win the nomination and Michael Bloomberg as the centrist uh, rival or the, the stop Bernie candidate. And that could yet happen. Yeah, I'd like I'd all of you to comment on. So what I find interesting is if you look at Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, okay, they're one and two or two and one, whatever. But they, they, they're both such different directions, you know. I mean, so Bloomberg is, I mean, I'm saying Bloomberg. Buttigieg is young and policy light, I would say. And there's Bernie, who's the oldest and really far left policy heavy. Neither one represent the establishment Democratic Party. What's that say about the Democratic Party today? Looking for new ideas or a new generation, but certainly not more of the same. 
Well, I, th- I think it reflects the split within the party. I mean, if you look ideologically, I mean, the, the party is essentially split into thirds between moderates, liberals, and very liberals. And the key, the key is who, which of these candidates can cross outside their lane and get significant amount of supports. And, you know, what's interesting about um, Sanders' performance in Iowa, um, it, in some ways, while he did well, he sort of underperformed what you would have expected given what he did in 2016. The fact that turnout really wasn't that much higher, I think, contradicts his point that he can expand the electorate. So, um, you know, and Buttigieg, you know, obviously benefits from a Biden um, uh, a, a Biden decline. But the question is, is, who can unify all of these parts or at least be that acceptable number two candidate to the other lanes? And we don't know that yet, do we? It's Elizabeth Warren's argument that she is, of course. Which is, you know, <laughs> right. Point. Or Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. Klobuchar makes an argument, yeah. maybe with less evidence to support it. And we've seen this divide play out on Capitol Hill as well. Nancy Pelosi had a had a tough road to get back to the speakership. There were younger, mm-hmm. uh, more liberal members who were challenging her for the speakership. Point, right. uh, also on the impeachment issue itself, which divided the party, there were uh, moderates and, and liberals who had opposing views on whether Democrats should go down that road. And so it's it's been playing out for quite some time. And in that case, she brought them together. And that's what we will pick up and talk about uh, right after we take a quick break here on the uh, Bill Press Roundtable this Friday. It is Friday about 8.30 in the morning, a little bit after that. Now, now, Standage from the Hill, Chris Liu from the Miller Center, University of Virginia, uh, Scott Wong from the Hill. And by the way, I'm a columnist for the Hill, so the Hill is represented <laughs> pretty heavily uh, here today. Let's take a quick break. Our podcast today brought to you by the great Teamsters Union of North America, North America's strongest union with 1.4 million members uh, representing workers in virtually every occupation you can think of, everything from airline pilots to zookeepers, or as they say, everything from A to Z, all under the leadership of President James P. Hoffa. We salute the Teamsters, thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, the State of the Union is a uh, revered tradition. Uh, used to be given in writing, as for a long time has been given in person. Uh, I've covered every State of the Union since Ronald Reagan's first one in 1982, but we've never seen one that started like this with Republican senators, senators welcoming the president with their message. Scott, what was this all about? It re- I was in the room that night. It really did feel like a campaign rally during many moments of it. And uh, it started off, obviously, with that exchange between Nancy Pelosi. You could sense the tension in the room. She was standing next to Mike Pence. They stood there for about 10 minutes and barely interacted at all. Usually, you know, when Joe Biden used to be up there, he would be, you know, shaking hands and slapping people's backs. Uh, and then, of course, the president ascended to the to the dais and uh, Pelosi reached out her hand to shake it. And the president turned he, his back, turned his back, didn't see it. Who knows? But it, I turned think it, it looked pretty deliberate to me. Yeah. And it was all downhill from there. And Chris, the president started out by saying and, and to, 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 to Scott's point, for the first third of the speech, maybe every sentence was since I was elected, boom. Since I was elected. And he said, since I was elected, the years of economic decay are finally over. You've written a piece in the Washington Monthly about his claims on uh, how much, how well the economy is doing. Yeah, I mean, whether you look at job growth, you look at uh, wage growth, economic growth, it's essentially the same in this first three years of the Trump administration as it was in the last three years of the Obama administration. You know, look, he, this is not unusual. I mean, you know, presidents always sort of, you know, if whether it's your first state of the union or your eighth, you try to to sort of talk about what you did and your your predecessor did not do. Uh, But this is sort of a striking thing. And obviously, you know, it's the message that was not only in the State of the Union, but in his Super Bowl ad um, as well, trying to, and, and this gives you a sense of what he will be running on for the rest of the year, if he can stay on message. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was a combination, Niall, of, to me, of campaign rally, as Scott said, and reality TV show. I mean, it was like every trick he could pull out of his hat, you know, in the gallery, he did. Sure, most memorably for good or ill probably the presenta- presentation of the uh, medal of freedom to rush limbaugh um which was controversial to say the very least i mean one can have sympathy for uh, rush limbaugh's health challenges and also recognize that he has been an almost uniquely inflammatory figure in um, public life in this country but look that that was part of the trump appeal to the base which is what he does much of the time to me it was interesting in terms even of its electoral purpose it was sort of a speech of two parts really one 
of which was emphasizing the economic record, which he clearly sees as his strongest card, and also to some extent trying, however successfully or not successfully, to inoculate him from the charge of racism. I mean, he was emphasizing a lot of things pertaining to the African-American community. So you had that on one side, and then on the other side, you'd uh, pay tribute to Rush Limbaugh, you'd some exceptionally hard-line rhetoric on immigration, you had all the usual red meat being tossed to the Trump base, and I think it was a combination of those two impulses. I had a uh, House Democrat yesterday describe the State of the Union to me as an Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, you know, you you get a free car and you get a free car. He was passing out scholarships to a young minority student, the the medal, Presidential Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. We saw that dramatic moment where he reunited the military family. The soldier came down the steps and surprised his wife and, and children uh, and he, that he had returned from the Middle East. And the Democrat actually said, you know, despite how I was feeling, I looked up into the audience and saw people crying at that moment. And I knew it was probably resonating with some people at home. And despite the mockery from Democrats, I think the Democrat felt that it was effective to a certain audience. I also think that that's a great point in general, that I think there there are some norms that Trump tramples upon that, that are definitely valuable and should be protected. At other times, he just, I think, offends beltway sensibilities in a way that there's no real particular downside to electorally. People here get... To his base. Or to anybody, really. I mean, do, do people... Are people... I mean, people who don't like Rush Limbaugh don't like him getting the Medal of Freedom, but is there a actual downside to something like the military reunion? I don't really see one, you know? Uh, and But, Chris, you have to say... First of all, I've been on the record since Ronald Reagan against presidents putting people in the gallery. And, <laughs> and it started famously with Ronald it Reagan. It started actually. with Ronald Reagan yeah. and Lenny Solnick or, Solnick or yeah, something yeah, right. who, who jumped in the river right, in the air right. Florida crash, right? Uh, but Democrats have done it. Republicans yeah. have done it. it. It's just, it's a gimmick uh, and it works. I'd have to say, we agree with now that it does work. But it, it, with Trump, I thought it was particularly diabolical. Uh, the little girl who got the scholarship, yeah. You have to feel for that little girl. You know, God bless her. But what Trump was saying was, I want to give money to religious schools and to private schools and take it away from public schools. You know, he didn't put it that way, but that's what he was saying. No, I didn't think that's exactly right. And I think part of it is, you know, and, and, and it's easy to get caught up in the pageantry and the reality aspects of it, uh, reality TV aspects, and then to look at the underlying message, underlying policies and what that actually means. And you'll see that pretty clearly next week uh, when he rolls out his budget in terms of, you know, what his priorities are. Yeah, and to underscore Niall's point, you know, he salutes the Tuskegee Airmen, and then he gives a Medal of Freeman, Freedom to the biggest racist on talk radio in the United States and has been for years, you know, who put out that jingle, Barack the Magic Negro, right? And so what was that? the message right there, there was a fascinating call a piece in um in ap yesterday about trump's uh, uh, attempts to appeal to african-americans and it's really not trying to break off african-american support mm. what it's really trying to do is make him seem less of a racist to suburban women mm-hmm. um to try yeah. to get some of that vote back i, I suspect yeah. with both of those groups um it's pretty transparent what he's doing and then we get to the senate trial and the vote scott and i'm sure you were in the room for that one as well um 
We all knew that there were not 67 votes. What surprised you, however? I think what surprised me and what surprised a lot of reporters watching was that Chuck Schumer was able to keep all of his troops in line. Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, uh, Doug Jones, Alabama, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, where Trump is enormously popular. And you see the Joe Manchin at the White House frequently, you know, rubbing shoulders with the president of the United States because he knows how popular he is. But Chuck Schumer said that he just left he left it up to his Democrats uh, to, mm-hmm. to vote their conscience and. Who knows if there was arm twisting behind the scenes, but uh, they were able to hold the line when we thought there might be at least, you know, as many as three defections. And there was, of course, one other surprise. The senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, uh, very emotionally explaining why he voted to, con- to convict on one count. Here he is. I am profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am. And he has to pause there to recollect himself, recognizing... I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. Um, more backbone than I ever expected out of Mitt Romney, Chris. Yeah, and I think it also shows where the Republican Party is now under Trump. It's interesting. If you look at four of the last five um, uh, presidents or presidential candidates, you've got Mitt Romney, who wants uh, President Trump removed. You've got John McCain, who is one of Trump's toughest critics. Uh, and then obviously both Bushes, who I have actually, mm-hmm. the reporting is neither voted for Trump in 2016. Um, and so I think this is not, this is less now, or it's more confirmation. This is less the Republican Party than it's Trump's party. No, absolutely. So Niall, as, as Mitt Romney says, he knows he's going to get a lot of blowback on this. And Trump already attacked him yesterday. And so did a lot of other, it's Donald Jr. saying he should be expelled from the Republican Party. But there definitely will be some playback. Um for my next podcast, I interviewed this week Rick Wilson, mm-hmm. a, Democrat, a Republican strategist, right? By the way, who, uh, who just wrote a book called "Running Against the Devil." Mm-hmm. Uh, he was sort of the leader of the Never Trumpers, and he talked about the blowback that he has been getting for some of his criticism of Donald Trump. Uh, here, here's just a little clip from that interview. Are you afraid of Donald Trump coming after you? Has he come after you? I mean, he's well, he's come. You? He's sent his people after me, and he's tweeted about me before. Which you know, I I've got a thick skin. But what bothers me is their outrage machine is calibrated to have to put his opponents in a position and his 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 adversaries in a position where the pressure on their families is so great that they shut up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this last week I said something smart ass about Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map uh, if it had a letter U and a physical crane picture next to it. <laughs> and so they tried to turn this into like Wilson's attacking Donald Trump's base. So since then, um, we've dealt with about 500 death threats of varying degrees of credibility. Jesus. And it's not just me. It's not like, oh, Wilson, you're wrong. You're an asshole. It's I'm coming to kill and ra- rape and kill your daughter. And she lives at this address in and mm. so and so the thugocracy around this guy re- d- demands fear of people and capitulation of people which is not my style and that's what mitt romney 
is afraid of and will probably receive. Wow. I, I've no doubt that he will uh, receive it. Uh, I mean, Rick spoke uh, very well about it. Uh, Rick, Rick Wilson, who I know and like, is no shrinking violet himself. It would be for personal history. I mean, obviously, I come to this. I come to the, came to this country from the north of Ireland, where there was actual political violence over a period of about thirty years, which had been sparked in part by very inflammatory rhetoric by politicians. Mm. So I. I mean, my assumption is that in this election year, people are going to get physically hurt. And my assumption is based upon the kind of rhetoric that is used primarily by the president, but which has also become the kind of standard currency of social media, and not just from his supporters, but from a lot of people. So, Scott, what kind of reaction response did Mitt Romney get from his fellow Republicans? You know, after Don Jr. called for Romney to be kicked out of the party, essentially, a lot of Republicans said, we're not going there. They they pretty quickly shut that down. Susan Collins said, I respect his decision. Mitch McConnell is standing by Romney. He, he knows that he needs Mitt Romney for so many other issues, especially since they have a very narrow majority. And if, if Mitch McConnell wants to remain in the majority, he's going to need Mitt Romney He's going to need his support on key issues, on key votes going forward. And so there, you know, there is an understanding that Romney was going to do what he's going to do and we're going to move past this and we're going to go forward as a party. And there was a time not so long ago when a member of your own party could vote one way, you vote the other way and you just sort of say, you know, hey, Joe, you know, I, we didn't we didn't get together on that one. Let's move on to the next thing. But the, those days have kind of come and gone. Yeah, no, Chris? it's interesting. If you go back in the vote totals of the, the Clinton impeachment vote, there were a fair number of Republicans that voted against impeachment, including Richard Shelby, actually, on one of the counts. And so um, we have moved to a partisan time. And I think Scott raises an important point, I think, that's been underappreciated, which is Chuck Schumer held his entire caucus in line. Um, and, you know, and, and, and it's sort of in some ways it speaks to the courage, obviously, of people like Doug Jones. But I think it also just speaks to the base politics now and perhaps also the mm-hmm. reason why Susan Collins and Murkowski and others don't flip, because the, the base is so hard on both sides. There is no advantage politically to trying to split the baby on this. And that's in, in some ways why Mitt Romney's vote was even more courageous. Right. Uh, so Susan Collins, who did vote to allow witnesses, um, did vote, however, to acquit. And her excuse or her re- rationing, reasoning for uh, acquitting is that she famously said to um, Norah Donald on uh, CBS News, she believes that Donald Trump learned his lesson, that he's going to be different from now on. Well, we saw how different Donald Trump is from now on. Yesterday in the East Room of the White House, here's just one little clip. We first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. (laughs) Yep, in the revered East Room of the White House. Where do we go from here, Scott? Well, and and then earlier that morning, of course, at the prayer breakfast itself... Uh, a, a moment of unity for both parties to come together. Donald Trump's there at the head table with Nancy Pelosi and all the political leaders and decides he's going to take that moment to bash Pelosi and to bash Mitt Romney and, and many other critics in the room and, and specifically going after uh, their use of religion, questioning their religion uh, at the national prayer breakfast itself. You must say for Donald Trump, 
to question anyone, the sincerity of anyone else's faith. It's about as cheeky as you can get. Chris. Yeah, no, I mean, it is uh, the hypocrisy is all over the place on this. And I think, you know, where this goes from here from a, you know, policy retribution a level, I think we don't know yet. I mean, someone, one of his uh, Republican members of Congress was quoted this morning saying, you know, maybe the best thing the president could do is just go play golf for a couple of days and just kind of cool down a little bit. But it's not clear that's happening. There's also reporting this morning that um, there's going to be a shakeup at the National Security Council. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, uh, who obviously testified against Trump, uh, will be moved out. Uh, they're going to frame it as a b- broader reshuffling of the NSC. But obviously, uh, you know, Vindman and Vindman's brother were very clearly mm-hmm, targeted mm-hmm. by the president yesterday uh, and as well as in the past. So, um, Niall, some people have actually raised the issue. The question is, moving forward, are we going to see reconciliation or retaliation? <laughs> Any doubt? <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump has ever been Mr. Reconciliation, to be perfectly honest. that I think that's what made the Susan Collins quote so absurd to so many people. She has backed away from it very slightly. But the idea of Donald Trump learning his lesson, I mean, this is a person who quite proudly has no sense of contrition, no apparent capacity for shame, really. And it seems quite proud of both those attributes. So the idea that he is going to be uh, cowed or otherwise uh, kind of regretful about his own conduct is completely against all the evidence we have from Donald Trump's entire life. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think he's going to take not only this week, but uh, the months to come, uh, settling scores with people he thinks have wronged him in this impeachment process. And, uh, you know, just ask people like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and Mark Sanford how they fared after they criticized the president. Right. Uh, And it's already started. But one little, just one little note. I think the fact that he said bullshit in the East Room makes it very clear that, in fact, he did say shithole countries in the Oval Office, right? I mean, (laughs) he's still denying that. I think we know that that was said at the time. Oh, boy. Somehow, um, we left a lot still on the table here, but we covered a lot of ground as well. Uh, But we got time for your favorite stories of the week. I always love to hear what might have caught your attention through all of this mess. You want to start us off, Scott? Sure. I was, so as I told you, I was in the State of the Union, uh, in the room where it happened, and (laughs) I'm sitting in the front row of the press gallery, and uh, I I can see all the lawmakers down below me, just above Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi's heads, and uh, I get a text message. We have have cell reception there. I get a text message. It says, can you take a picture of me? It's a GOP lawmaker in the audience. I'm searching, searching, <laughs> scanning the crowd, find the lawmaker. Did he gives me a little wave? And I texted back, uh, regrettably, I cannot take a picture of you because there's a very strict rule. No photography unless oh. you are an official photographer in the state of the union in the oh. in the house chamber and uh, i i knew that rule uh very personally because during the obama years when i first arrived in washington uh one state of the union i made the mistake of taking a picture a security guard across the chamber saw me radioed to his buddy who was right behind me and i, and I was booted ejected out of 
Whoa. Barack Obama's State of the Union. <laughs> well, yeah, and as a guest, you have to turn your phone in. You can't even take it down with you, uh, not as a reporter, but right. as a guest. That's correct. correct. Yeah. All right. Well, you, lesson, lesson learned. Yeah. Niall. So, uh, I mean, I, I thought an interesting story, at least, and one that give, gives us maybe a little more hope about politics, was not on the national level, but on the state or city level. Uh, as a former resident of New York City, I'm very glad to see that they have now banned a broker's fees being charged to renters or people seeking to rent apartments, which was a very lucrative scam, in my opinion, mm. for many years, where people would be charged 10 or 12% of an annual uh, amount of rent by brokers. And that has been uh, banned by um, New York State, but most particularly pertains to New York City. It will help millions of people there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. Rents are high enough already in New exactly, York. Exactly. Exactly. How about it, Chris? Well, so lost in all the horse race were these CNN town halls that happened over the last couple of days. And there was this wonderful human moment during Joe Biden's town hall where he was asked about his stuttering. And you'll recall, this is not something he has talked about until recently. Yeah. And it's kind of a wonderful three minute clip where he talks about um, when he meets, um, especially children who've been stuttering um, uh, on the campaign trail. He'll take them backstage. He will show them how he marks up speeches the way that they did in the King's speech. Uh, and he gets their phone numbers and about 15 of these kids that he checks in with on a regular basis. And look, regardless of you know what you think about him as a candidate, it's a wonderful moment of decency and empathy that we could use a lot more of in our leaders. No, I saw that. That was very moving, I yeah. thought, that, that they take that attention to them yeah. and really help them out. Yeah. As I pointed out, well, my favorite story comes out of the UK. Well, ac actually, it's US and UK. Um, Franklin Graham has not been a favorite character of mine. His father, I revered and honored. I think Franklin Graham, who's a 100% uh, Trumper, uh, does not represent the best of the evangelical movement or of Christianity. Uh, so he had planned a great big tour of the UK. Um, he was going. He had from May 30 to October 4. Uh, was planning eight appearances, um, preaching at eight different locations. Uh, seven of those sets were already uh, established. The concert or the venue was set and everything. Uh, and this week, all seven canceled him and said, we don't want you. You preach hate. Uh, we, have, we want nothing to do with you. Franklin Graham, in fact, still in tweeting in response to that, insists that homosexuality is a sin and uh, an, an abomination, uh, and the LGBT community in the UK just went after him, and they convinced each one of these seven cities to say, no, stay away, we don't want you. The eighth location, London, no location had been set, and no, lo no location may ever be found, in, in fact, for him to preach in London. So, uh, like you, that gave me a, now a little moment of hope here that maybe uh, not all is bad with the world. <laughs> Once in a while, some good things, some good things happen. Uh, hey, thank you, guys. Thank you, Niall, so much from The Hill, thehill.com. Scott Wong from The Hill, thehill.com. And Chris Liu, how can we find you? Uh, Chris Liu, 44 on Twitter. Chris Liu, 44 on Twitter. Uh, and let me just close things up with my parting shot, which I always remind you are my comments alone, my opinion, and not necessarily those of the panel. Um, but it kind of touches on what we just talked about. There are some positive things that we should recognize. And uh, I admit that as members of the media, especially those of us who are columnists or commentators, we're often criticized for being too negative, and rightly so. Too often, 
We write about all the things politicians do wrong without ever giving them credit when they, however, occasionally get something right. Speaking personally, for example, I've strongly criticized Republican members of the Senate for having no courage. So let me take a moment today to recognize and salute once again one Republican senator who showed a lot of courage this week, and of course, I'm talking about Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Only people like Scott Wong, who covers Congress, know the enormous pressure that Republican senators were under from Mitch McConnell and from the White House to stick by Donald Trump no matter how much evidence there was against him. Pressure so intense that only one, only Mitt Romney, had enough backbone to resist. Speaking on the Senate floor, Romney said that when history books are written, quote, I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. But he was wrong. When history books are written, Romney will stand out as the only Republican senator willing to put what was best for his country and best for the Constitution above what was best for his political party. It's a disgrace that President Trump awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom this week to hate monger Rish Rush Limbaugh, the man who truly deserves the Presidential Medal of Freedom, in my opinion, is Mitt Romney. My parting shot for today. Thanks again to our panelists, Scott and Chris and Niall. Thanks to all of you for listening. And uh, we leave you with uh, three little homework assignments. Number one, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just uh, look up Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in while you're there. Uh, Second task, uh, do us a favor by giving us a big, fat five-star rating. That really helps us grow the podcast. And finally, assignment number three, follow me on Twitter, at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod, for all my latest tweets of the day. Not as many as Donald Trump, but I get there a couple of times a day. And you'll get advance notice of any upcoming podcast as well. That's it for now. Uh, wrap for this podcast, this roundtable. Stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of The Bill Press Pod.